2006, November 22nd. Today is Lecture 41, Planetary Rings, which will begin in just a moment. Okay. So today we're going to be finishing up our discussion of kind of the, the Jovian systems. We talked、um, Monday and Tuesday about the moon systems of Jupiter and Saturn, but I've sort of only just mentioned passing at the end of yesterday's lecture Saturn's rings. Turns out that rings actually by themselves are very interesting dynamical systems. They contain a lot of interesting properties. They're illustrations of the sort of things that can go on within the solar system. So today, I want to make today's lecture is going to discuss now planetary rings across the four Jovian planets. The basic key ideas today are to first of all just state a bald fact: all Jovian planets have rings. They don't all have bright, shiny ring systems like Saturn, but they all have rings of some kind or another. And which those rings are made of depends a lot on where those planets are. Jupiter, for example, has very, very faint, very dusty rings. There are no ices, or virtually no ices, in the, in the rings of Jupiter. Saturn, of course, is the prototypical ringed world. It's got very, very bright, spectacular rings made of shiny ices. Uranus and Neptune also were found to have rings. They were very difficult to see at first. In fact, they were not observed from the ground、um, directly as pictures. They actually were originally detected by watching stars pass by the planets, and they kind of blink out as they pass behind. Uranus has very dark, very thin rings that show up and actually show up nowadays in the infrared, and Neptune has very dark, very thin rings, and in fact has partial rings. They have ring arcs, so you kind of have this loss of material as you go outwards. But every single one of these has a ring system of some kind, and the composition tells us something about the plausible origin. Now, the basic ring properties, any ring, whether it's icy or dusty or whatever, is basically bands of orbiting particles. The individual particles are actually on orbit around the central planet, and they all fall down in the equatorial plane and they settle down in. And the settling mechanism that allows them to settle into a ring is, in fact, collisions between particles. So this is one of these places where we can actually watch what it's like to have an orbiting system in which the members of that system are colliding all the time, and the collisions actually tell us what some of the properties are. So rings are actually interesting from a point of view of dynamics because the only other time in the solar system where we had a disk of colliding systems was when the solar system was forming. So it actually gives us, in many ways, a laboratory for the dynamics of things moving around. But collisions are now important, whereas in most of the solar system, collisions are relatively rare unless they're like really big ones. So that's the basic idea behind ring properties. But there's also two other ideas. One of these is that some of the rings are very, very geometrically thin, and not in terms of their breadth, not in terms of their thickness.、And、this is actually due to an effect known as shepherd moons.、So、rings should spread out until they basically vanish, but they're confined by something, and gravity plays a role in confining and shaping rings. So we can once again we'll see the interaction of Objects orbiting with other objects through gravity, not by running into them, will meet shepherd moons, which is one of the interesting predictions, which was then confirmed by observations on the spacecraft, and will say about something about the Roche or tidal radius of a planet. That's the minimum distance you can get, maximum as close as a planet as you can get before tidal forces rip you apart. And this is one of the pieces that tells us why the rings are where they are around the planets. Well, let's just sort of do this as sort of an in Inside-out tour of the solar system ring systems. Jupiter has very, very faint, very, very dusty rings. They're made of pretty much instead of being made of ices, they're actually made of sort of micron-sized dark dust particles. It's ground-up rock and ground-up stuff to where it's all now finer than powder. 
So if you think about what a micron-sized dust grain is like, think about flour, for example. Flour is about that fine, but it's going to be completely dark and nasty stuff. There's not very much mass in the Jupiter rings. Even though they're visible and we can see them, there's, if you added up all the mass and tried to wad it up into a ball, you'd only get something about one trillionth the mass of the Earth. So about 10 to the minus 12 solar Earth, 12, 10 to the minus 12 Earth masses worth of stuff in these rings. But because they're spread out, they got a lot of surface area, they collect sunlight, they get a little bit warm, they can reflect sunlight, and they can also shine at infrared wavelengths. Now where the rings came from in Jupiter is part and parcel of what the rings are made of. Where did this fine, dusty powder stuff come off of? Well, the most likely sources are going to be material that actually got knocked off of the various moons of Jupiter, for example, as meteoritic impacts and other things on the surfaces of these moons. You're going to basically punch junk off the surface, and that junk, powder junk, is going to collect in orbit, collide with itself, and settle into the, into the plane of the, of, the, of the equator of the planet. The other place where you can get little bits of tiny, dark, carbonaceous dust particles turns out to be from comets. One of the things that Jupiter does in the solar system is it seems to grab a hold of and influence comets that come past it. We've actually seen a comet collide directly with the planet Jupiter. You may remember when Comet Shoemaker 119 a few years ago actually ran into the planet and it left tremendous black spots over the surface. Did any of you ever get a chance to get out and see Jupiter when it was getting hit by the, by the comet? Maybe some of you may, a couple of you probably did that. It, it was spectacular. I remember waiting up to see. We didn't know what was going to happen. We really didn't know what was going to happen when the comet hit the planet. And the first impacts were on the backside. And so the expectation was going to be a nice little bright flash, but it was going to be on the other side. We weren't going to see it. So we were all watching with telescopes, and then all of a sudden, this big black spot rotates into view, and we knew that we were going to have a really fun week. <laughs> it was great. But that black junk, some of that black junk will actually make its way into, from the comets that pass by into the ring system. So that's the likely origin. Now, when you think of rings around planets, of course, you think of Saturn and the big, bright, broad rings. This is what Jupiter's rings look like. This is one of the ways in which you can visualize these dark rings. This was a photograph taken from the Galileo orbiter around Jupiter, and it's looking at the midnight side of Jupiter. So the sun is basically that way. We're looking towards the direction of the sun at the backside of the planet Jupiter. Now, Jupiter has a big atmosphere, so there's some refraction of sunlight around the planet. And so we see the, um, we see the uh, scattering of sunlight around the atmosphere, so it gives Jupiter this kind of ring effect. <coughs> now, a little trick here. You might say, well, why is it dark here and here? Well, what you don't see in this picture is it's actually stitched together from two images. One is here, the other is here. So they actually didn't image the backside of the planet per se. They took a, a, a mosaic of pictures sweeping across the planet because Jupiter is a whole lot bigger than the field of view of the camera. So this section just simply wasn't imaged. And you can see these very, very thin rings now shining because the sunlight comes in and bounces off of them preferentially. It's what you call um, forward scattering. So this gives us a very, very nice view. And you see how really, really thin these rings are. It's like someone just went in and kind of just chalked them in. And you can also see what the relationship is of the diameter of the ring system to the diameter of the planet. It's a little over two Jupiter radii for this main ring here. So these things are very, very close to the parent, to the planet body. That's part of a clue as to where these things probably came from. 
Now, of course, in detail, you can see what the, what the ring system looks like. There's actually quite a bit of information about what the ring is like. First of all, the ring is actually divided up into about three zones. The main halo here, this main ring, and the gossamer rings, which were part of what you saw in that picture previously. This is now a cartoon. And the inner rings actually are bounded by a series of moons. These are very tiny moons. The inner orbit is two moons, Adrastea and Metis, Amalthea, and Thebe. And where the orbits of these moons interact gravitationally with the ring particles is what actually confines the ring to this plane, so to, to the outer diameter that you see it. So if there was no, for example, if the moon Thebe was not there for its gravity to kind of shove the ring material back in, these rings would very quickly spread out until you basically vanished because all the collisions are basically like taking a pile of ping pong balls. They all basically spread out into a single monolayer when they collide with each other. The inner portion here is this halo is basically the innermost portion of the ring. So what ring systems, and Jupiter is, a, is again a miniature of what we're going to see in the other planets, is the ring system itself is actually fairly broad. The particles that we see brightest, of course, make as part of that main ring that was in that picture before. But then a lot of it's very, very thin but it's bounded with an inner radius where you don't have any ring particles closer to the planet than this inner radius and some outer radius. In this case, this outer radius is defined in large measure by this outer moon, Thebe. So the moons play part of a role in shaping the rings and telling you what the basic limits are. The inner limit is basically an inner tidal limit from Jupiter and the outer limit is based on the outer positions of the moons. So that's the Jupiter rings. There isn't a whole lot to say about them, but they are dark and dusty. You did form them in that system, and the presence of the moons helps keep them shaped and confined. But of course, the real prototype of a ring system is the Saturn ring system. This is an extremely elaborate system. It contains of many millions of bands of broad, bright, icy particles that uh, move around the rings. They're very, very broad gaps. In fact, these gaps were seen from ground-based telescopes for a long time. They're, they're given names like the Cassini division and the Anki gap. Cassini was a, a member of a, I believe this was Domenico Cassini is this one. This was actually a family of French astronomers in the, um, uh, pretty much from the late 17th through 19th centuries. It was many generations within the same family in France were actually astronomers, fathers, grandfathers, and so forth. And uh, the Cassini observations here was the first sign that the rings were not a continuous system, but in fact had a, were broken. They had a dark band in them. It's been called now the Cassini division, or sometimes called the Cassini gap, you'll see written. The Anki Gap, Anki was a, a German astronomer who was famous mostly for discovering a number of asteroids, but he also found a second, smaller gap in the rings. This ring, was, this ring gap was found as the technology of telescopes got better. It's a much smaller gap and so not as obvious. So, for example, if you go to see Saturn with the telescope over on Smith Lab, you are pretty much guaranteed to see the Cassini division if conditions are pretty good. Under really exceptional conditions, you can also see the Anki Gap in the rings. There's another gap in there called the Keeler Gap that was discovered in the late 19th century with an even bigger telescope. Now, the rings are very, very broad. They extend out from about 73,000 out to about 140,000 kilometers from the planet. But again, this sounds like a lot until you compare it to the diameter of the planet itself, and you find out that the inner portion of the rings comes no closer than 1.2 Saturn radii. So it's basically 20% of the distance from the center above the tops of the clouds defines the inner edge of the gap, uh, inner edge of the rings, and the outer edge of the rings is only a little over twice the diameter of the planet. 
So it's almost exactly the same proportions that we saw when we just saw that picture of Jupiter. Although Jupiter, it was out more like, yeah, about a little less than two Jupiter radii. The rings themselves, while they are very broad, I mean, these, the system right here, you say, well, it's only one to two, three R Saturn. These things are 70,000 kilometers wide. Remember that the diameter of the Earth is only about 12,000 kilometers. So these things are way bigger than the Earth. But they're exceedingly thin. So while they extend for 70,000 kilometers, from top to bottom, they're about in thickness, about the distance from one end zone to another over in the stadium. So we go from planetary, giant planetary scale system in breadth and not much bigger than something you could walk out in a few minutes or a fast runner can run in a couple of seconds, 100 meters thick. So they're very, very thin. They're much thinner than a sheet of paper. Again, by comparison, if you made a sheet of paper in the same proportions as the rings are broad, a one millimeter thick sheet of paper would have to be 10 kilometers wide. So it's very, very, very thin, very, very broad. This fact that they're thin is part of part parcel of how these things actually form. These things are formed primarily by collisions with small objects. So here's a, a really nice, spectacular picture of the rings. I'm going to toss this, um, this light out here so it makes it a little easier to see in contrast. This is a beautiful picture that was taken a few months ago with the Cassini spacecraft, again playing that same trick of where you let the sun be eclipsed by the planet, so you're, the spacecraft is on the backside looking at the sun, th or trying to look at the sun through the planet. And so we end up with the rings backlit by the sun. Now, the Cassini camera is a much wider field camera. It's a much more advanced spacecraft than Galileo. It also was, at this time when this picture was taken, it was on the far outer portion of its orbit looking back. So within this mosaic of images, it was able, it took, again, an image mosaic with the wide field camera. And, of course, now that we've got it into a computer, we sort of play a few games and we add a little bit of fake color to it. We do a lot of color enhancement just to sort of amp the contrast up. So you can see uh, a little bit of glint of sunlight coming out the bottom there. You can see the halo formed by the gaseous atmosphere of Saturn. And then, of course, you can see the very, very broad, bright rings. The inner portion of the rings are just above the surface of the planet. There's this broad Cassini division you can see here, it's actually not empty. It's actually got some stuff in it, but it appears dark. So the, the, at least to a very simple telescope, the rings of Saturn look like a bright, broad inner ring, a gap, and then a bright, broad outer ring. You can see a second gap outside of that towards the outside. So sort of this thin black line here, that's the Anki gap. And then there's a series of other rings sitting outside this system, the bright outer E-ring that we met yesterday, the E-ring is powered by Enceladus, as we saw yesterday. And in fact, you can see Enceladus down in there. This faint ring out here is the G-ring. The inner rings have the rather imaginative names A, B, C, D. There's a very, very thin ring on the outside we're going to see in a second called the F-ring. So we have A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Okay, there's all the main rings of, of the planet. Now, there's another piece of this. Some of you may have seen this. I showed this as astronomy picture of the day a few weeks ago. The other point of interest in this picture is this little dot right here. That's the Earth. It's actually been viewed through the ring planks. Remember, the Earth orbits close to the Sun. Well, we're out at Saturn, 10 astronomical units away. So since um, the Earth is only one astronomical unit at most, 
And not surprisingly, we have most of the contact with the spacecraft when we're on the same side of the sky, because we don't have to go through the sun with the radio waves, which is a lot of radio interference. It's hard to point a radio telescope. So the, sun, so the Earth does not get very far from the sun, as viewed from the position of Saturn. And it turns out that when this picture was taken, there was the Earth right out inside the G-ring. So not only are we looking at uh, Saturn, we also have a minor look home. <laughs> this is a close-up now of the rings. Uh, this is the inner A ring. B ring, and then the very, very bright, um, very, very dark, excuse me, Cassini division. The outer ring, the, I believe I've got the order right, A, B, C, this ring here. There's the, uh, the Enki gap, and then this outer D ring, and then you can see there's a very, very thin line here, the very, very bottom. That's the F ring, and that, I mentioned, the so-called Keeler gap is in there. You can get an idea of how really hard it was for Keeler to see that. The seeing and everything, the atmosphere must have to be just right. Keeler was an awesome observer. Um, but this, this picture illustrates a number, of, a number of points. One is that the ring particles, for the most part, are bright and shiny. And that the individual rings themselves are really made up of a whole bunch of lines of these particles. You can see a lot of grooves and lines running through here. And also you can see that some of the ices are white and some of them are kind of a slight red. Now, again, we've played a few games with the computer. We've, we've enhanced the contrast. Well, I haven't enhanced the contrast, but the scientists on the Cassini team have enhanced the contrast a bit. And they are slightly redder. So some of the ices are slightly older and dustier and dirtier, and some of the ices are newer. The fact that we have a mixture of bright, shiny, and slightly dirtier-looking ices is telling you, again, that the rings are not just simply a static system. They're a very, very dynamic system. The way you get yourself shiny is you basically have collisions among the various ring particles, and you rub off the layers of varnish. And so you, you polish up and shine up the ice balls. But there are very clearly some very strong gaps and some very, very sharp edges in here. And these are not accidents. There actually is a lot of interesting dynamics going on in the rings. Because remember, Saturn is surrounded by a very large system of moons. And those moons and the ring particles interact with each other. Again, to make this other point, that the rings, while they're very, very broad, are also exceedingly thin. This is a picture taken with the Cassini spacecraft as it flew down through the ring plane, which you can see it looks like it's a couple, three pixels wide here on the projection display. It's really only 100 kilometers, and the reason why it appears as bright as it does because of all those shiny ices shining back at you. But you can see the shadow of the rings on, on the uh, planet. The sun is shining down here this way. You can see where the sun, the day-night side is. So the sun's coming up this way, and you can see the shadow cast by the rings on the cloud tops of Saturn. It's really, one of the things about the rings of Saturn are some of the most beautiful images ever returned by any spacecraft have to be of the rings. They're just it's aesthetically pleasing, amazing. All right, what do we got? What are the rings made of? Well, it was shown very early on and demonstrated even in the 19th century that the rings, part of, rings themselves could not be solid material because if they were solid, it would be completely unstable. What you have, in fact, are rotating little ice balls, literally billions upon billions of ice balls, all of which are following independent orbits in the equatorial plane of, uh, of, of Saturn. They range in size from centimeters, basically the size of, of small pebbles and sort of you know, chickpea kind of lentil size type of things, all the way up to about five meters. So the largest, the largest ice ball you expect would actually fill this room. That's about as big as they ever get. Any bigger than that, collisions break them down into smaller sizes. Smaller grains are having slow collisions can stick together 
and build back up. So you get a range of sizes. And it looks like a huge amount of stuff. Although you've got to remember, even though it's 70,000 kilometers wide, it's only 100 meters thick. And it's made up of little tiny, very shiny things. So because they're so shiny, they look disproportionately bright compared to most everything else. And if you could wad up all those ice balls into one gigantic snowball, it would only have one one millionth the mass of the Earth. But it would be a mass, if you put it together, about 100 kilometers. Well, 100 kilometers is not a crazy size. We see 100 kilometer sized ice and rock balls around Saturn. In fact, most of the moons of Saturn are these small little ice balls. So what we find is that the rings themselves are, not contain are containing as much material as we could find on any one of the small moons in equivalent material. It's just we've spread it out over a gigantic area, 70,000 kilometers wide, about 100 meters thick. So this is kind of a clue as to where it might have come from. If this material had been able to form into a moon, or maybe it, it, maybe, it, maybe it came from a moon that was busted up, or it was material that was never able to form into a moon, but the amount of material, again, is about moon, moon scale. Now, as the ice balls together collide, two processes happen. They have a slow collision. The heat, of that, the heat of that collision will melt the surface ices, which in the cold space immediately freeze, and so the two ice balls will stick together. So you get a larger ice ball tumbling end over end. A high-speed collision can do two things. One is it can actually bust both balls into smaller pieces, or it can chip fragments off, and you sort of send little chips and shards off. Think about throwing ice balls back and forth on the Earth, and you get kind of what the idea is. So these collisions basically trade energy back and forth. And this is the key to how the rings actually form themselves. Normally, when you set something into orbit around something else, like you set the moon into orbit around the Earth or a planet into orbit around the sun, you give it a certain amount of orbital energy. And if there's nothing else to interact with it, no gravity, nothing else other than the gravity of the sun, it will, should, if nothing else changes, just orbit in that orbit, stay in that orbit forever and ever. But in fact, there are other planets. And as those planets come by, you trade orbital energy a little bit. A little tug from Jupiter, you tug back on Jupiter. You've actually traded a little bit of energy in doing that. That's a very, very slow process. But it occurs, and we see evidences of that process all over the solar system. Things like resonances. Tidal resonances are ways of leaking energy out of things. So we get the spin-orbit resonances. We get the orbit-orbit resonances like we saw around Jupiter. But if you bring collisions into play, collisions are a very, very effective way to share energy among two orbiting objects. Think about, think about billiard balls on a pool table. right? What you're doing is you're exchanging energy. You give energy to the cue ball, and as it hits other balls, it imparts energy to them, and they impart energy to each other around. So I've taken one moving object, and by a series of collisions, I've sorted that energy all over the pool table. The same thing happens in an orbiting system. As the various ice balls bounce off each other, occasionally sticking, occasionally bouncing and knocking off fragments, they're exchanging orbital energy. And so the whole system achieves an equilibrium very, very quickly. Collisional systems are very efficient at reshuffling energy. So why are the rings so thin? Well, imagine I had a box full of ping pong balls. And I upended it up here. I'm not going to do that because it would take me forever to clean it up. What's going to happen? The ping pong balls are all going to, you could imagine making a stack of ping pong balls and you could very carefully build a little pyramid of ping pong balls. And then I stand back and I throw one ping pong ball at the system. What's it going to do? 
Well, it's going to impart energy to it, which is going to knock one out, and it's going to knock its neighbor, and they're going to all start knocking around. But what are they going to do? They're going to eventually spread out across the floor into one single layer of ping pong balls. No ping pong ball on top of the other. It would be a continuous flat mess, and they would spread out until the collisions between them got rarer and rarer because they got further apart, and so you had to move further to run into somebody else. So while they're all packed up, they go, you know, they go crazy going along, but as they spread out, it, each ping pong ball has a collision rarer and rarer, and so that pile of ping pong balls should eventually spread itself out into a single layer until all the collisions stop. That gives the rings a dynamical evolution mechanism. If I took a pile of ice balls, really thick and really constrained, and I said, go, as they bounce into each other, the vertical motion would simply have them moving up and down. There'd be a lot of collisions until they finally reached the point they spread out in their orbit. Some would get a little extra energy and move out. Some would lose energy and move closer to the planet. So the pile of, of ice balls would slowly spread out and as the vertical collisions, they'd also be bouncing up and down relative to the orbit. Eventually, they reach the point where as they bounce and oscillate up and down, they no longer hit anything. And they would settle into a single monolayer. And that's how you can get ice particles anywhere from centimeter to five meters in a layer only 100 meters thick, but 70,000 kilometers wide. So... This is the part of the collisions play an extremely important role in giving you the structure of the rings. Without those collisions, they would not spread out. They'd all stay bunched up. But the collisions resort orbital energy. Some of the particles lose energy and migrate into the planet. Maybe they fall all the way into the Saturn itself. And others will simply spread out into space. So it's the collisions, not only that keep the ice balls bright and shiny, but also keep them in that flat, thin ring plane. I spent a lot of time on the slides, so we'll keep moving. So here's a little cartoon. I should have put this up while I was yammering. This is basically a, 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 a painting of what it would look like riding around inside the rings. Basically, you would find yourself in a field of ice balls. And about this, dent, about this size, the biggest of these things would be about the size of this room and lots of stuff. You would not want to travel very fast through the main body of the rings. It would probably be a really bad thing to do. But the distance, average distance between these, this is about right. This is actually in proper proportions here. Bill Hartman, the person who uh, made this painting, who, by the way, is of, of one of the authors of your textbook, um, is, uh, did a nice job with that. Okay, back on track. Uranus. Uranus also has rings. They're very, very narrow rings, and they were discovered in the 1970s by watching a star pass behind Uranus. Now, people were watching that star pass behind Uranus because they wanted to watch how the star disappeared into the upper atmosphere to see if there were different layers in the atmosphere. Even though the telescope could not see the planet in quite this kind of detail like we can with modern technology, it allows you to have the starlight passing through the atmosphere probe what the upper structure of the Uranus atmosphere would be like. So they would lock on the star, and here would be Uranus coming up, ready to go and do this occultation, as it's called. It so completely covers the star, we call it an occultation rather than an eclipse. And they're waiting for this to happen. As they're waiting for this, all of a sudden, the starlight goes, boop, drops out. Then, boop, 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 dropped out five times, and then it hit the planet. They said, well, what was that all about? And so they watched the entire occultation, watched the star emerge from the planet, and then as it moved away, instead of stopping the experiment like they usually did, they kept watching, and there were those same five dips all over again. And they discovered by watching 
the star disappear behind the ring material discovered that Uranus, in fact, had a system of rings. There were five rings found in all. They were given the imaginative names Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, and Epsilon, the broadest of which was the Epsilon ring. Um, this is a picture now taken not from the ground, but in fact from the Voyager 2 spacecraft. Here's a picture on the right here is the entire planet Uranus taken a couple of years ago with the Keck telescope. An infrared picture shows the, uh, shows the rings actually in backscattered infrared light. Infrared light is easily backscattered by the ring particles. This is a picture taken by the Voyager 2 spacecraft. And you can see how very different these are from the rings of Saturn. Instead of being very, very broad, they're very, very, very thin. This wide epsilon ring, in fact, is only 100 kilometers wide. Compare that to the 70,000 kilometer wide ring system we just saw on the planet Saturn. Now, if you look at it from the backside, this backlighting trick is a very, very good way to see the rings. These streaks here are actually the background stars. The spacecraft is moving so fast it locked on the rings and so smeared the stars out in the background. It's like if you were taking a a time exposure picture of a moving car, you'd see all the streetlight streak, but you'd see the car stand still. So now you can see the broad epsilon ring, and you can see it's about 100 kilometers wide, and you can see there's a lot of little tiny ringlets in between, but a lot of empty stuff. This is really, really dark material. So it's a beautiful picture of the ring system, but again, we see the rings are really made up of band after band. In this case, it's mostly dirty ice balls. Because these rings are very thin, except in places where the density is really high and there's lots of collisions, the ices here should be relatively shiny. But out here, where there aren't that many collisions, the ices stay mostly dirty, and it's really, really hard to see the rings. So here's where collisions being rare makes the rings darker, even though they should be just ice balls. Neptune also has rings, but they're the thinnest rings. They're only a few kilometers wide. And they're best seen actually in backlighting. They've been seen again through this occultation trick, but it was very, very odd data. People watch this, okay, we saw rings around Uranus, let's go do the same trick with Neptune the next time a bright star passes behind Neptune. So they watched, and one person saw, boop, oh, there one went, disappeared, oh, there's another disappearance, yes, we got rings, wait on the other side, nothing happened. It's a ring, you know, you gotta hit it going in and coming out. Well, they hit it going in, I think, on one case, another case, they got it coming out. What the heck? Well, what the heck is that the rings weren't co are not complete in Neptune. They actually have arcs, pileups of material, and they're not complete circles around. They're only a few kilometers wide. They've only been seen in direct light from a spacecraft, Voyager 2, passing as it passed the planet Neptune, looked back towards the sun using the uh, planet as a backlight, and you can see these very, very thin rings and ring arcs. In fact, here's part of one of the big mosaics here. Um, the very, very thin rings. You can see they're almost like someone just chalked in a line. Now, um, I want you to remember that the Neptune encounter occurred in 1989. 1989 was the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution, storming of the Bastille on July 14th of 1789. And these very three bright ring arcs were seen very clearly in the backlight. And so in honor of the French Revolution, they were called named Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, the, uh, the, the motto of the French Revolution. These are the ring arcs. Apparently, when the earlier experiment came through, the ring passed through one of the arcs. These things are so thin it barely registered, and on the other side, well, there's no arc there, so the star just passed apparently undimmed, and that's how these things were discovered. This solved the mystery of the, the partial rings of Neptune. 
Now, how come these super narrow rings can exist? I just told you that if you took a pile of ping pong balls, they'd spread themselves out. Narrow rings should not exist. The collisions just simply destroy them. What's happening? What's happening is a phenomenon known as shepherd moons. Now the moons get to play a role. Imagine we have a ring of particles, a bunch of ice balls, and I put two moons, one on the inside of the ring and the other on the outside of the ring. Kepler's third law tells me that the closer I am to a planetary body, the faster my orbit. The further I am out, the slower the orbit. The period squared is proportional to semi-major axis cubed. Longer period means takes you longer to move around. So what happens is, compared to an ice ball orbiting in the ring here, the outer moon is always going to trail behind because you're moving faster, you're on the inside track, but the moon on the inner side has the innermost track and so it's always going to come out ahead of you. So if you're a ring particle, what you see is, as you're cruising by, you pass the outer moon <laughs> by like that, but as you look to the inside, the inner moon passes you by. Now, let's say a collision occurs, you bounce into one of your partners and you suddenly fall in towards the planet. Well, as you fall in towards the planet, on average, the other moon will be in front of you, and so you feel a gravitational tug. So you've been slowed down by your collision, and you start falling in towards the planet, but then the inner moon goes Poof, by. As it goes by, you feel a gravitational tug from it, pulling you forward, accelerating you forward, and pushing you back up into where you were. So while the collisions want to spread the ring out, the moon's gravity accelerates on the inside and shepherds it back into place. On the outside, let's say you have a collision with your neighbor and you get a little extra speed. Woohoo, I'm faster. <laughs> Try to move into a higher orbit. Well, as you move into a higher orbit, you say, ha, bye moon, moon, like that. But wait, the inner moon's got a lot of gravity behind you. Its gravitational tug is pulling in the opposite direction you're moving and you decelerate and you slow back down into the orbit you had. So the effect of the outer moon tending to retard motion going out pushes you back into the ring plane. The inner moon tends to yank forward on slow moving moons, moving them up back into the ring plane. So the net effect is that you confine the ring like a pair of sheepdogs keeping a flock of sheep moving down a field. And so we refer to these as shepherd moons. The existence of an extremely narrow ring, the F ring and Saturn's rings, with the tiny Keeler gap between it and the other ring, was really mysterious. And so a number of scientists, one of them was Peter Goldreich and one of his students, proposed this mechanism of shepherd moons. Oops. Sure enough, when the Voyager 1 spacecraft flew by Saturn, I'm sorry, yeah, Voyager 1 flew by Saturn, when it took a picture of the very, very thin outer F ring, it saw in place two moons sitting on either side of the F ring just had been predicted by theory because that thin ring should not have been able to exist for very long. And they've been named Pandora and Prometheus, are the names of these two shepherd moons of the planet Saturn. If we look very carefully, now Cassini has given us a tremendously clear view of this interaction. Here's the F ring and here's Prometheus, that innermost ring. And now you can see the innermost moon is, is cruising along this way but you can see the gravitational wake of the passage of Prometheus 
on the ring itself. In fact, you can even see some material that's actually being kind of drawn off by the close gravity of this thing. And so you can actually see is not only do you get a single ring, but in fact the ring is being sculpted into multiple waves due to the passage of this moon and then the outer moon Pandora, which is not on the field when this particular picture was taken. It was in a different part of its orbit. And so you can see how this ring has actually been sculpted by these waves that get pushed through this. The Cassini data are absolutely stunning for learning about ring dynamics. That tiny, thin epsilon ring of Uranus, when Voyager 2 looked back upon it in backlight, two of the things that it saw were Ophelia and Cordelia, a pair of shepherd moons, keeping that epsilon ring still coherent. The rest of the rings are mostly spreading out and vanishing, but why is the epsilon ring so big? Because it is being confined by those two shepherd moons in place. So shepherd moons act to confine thin rings that would otherwise have long since been spread out by collisions. What about the other shapes in the rings? What about this Cassini division? Why is it this broad band of ring particles in Saturn that goes from 1.2 to about 2.3, the radii of the planet, all of a sudden just stops? And then there's kind of a little bit of stuff, and then it picks up again. What's going on with that? Well, what's going on with that is ice balls in the Cassini division here are fairly close to the planet. They complete an orbit around the planet once every 11 hours. In an orbit a little bit further out is the tiny moon Mimas. Remember the Death Star moon? It completes an orbit around Saturn every 22 hours. Two to one resonance. One orbit for, the ring, two, one orbit for Mimas, two orbits for the ring particles in the Cassini division. On the inside and outside, they're no longer in a whole number ratio. So every two orbits, if the ring goes around, it gets a tug towards Mimas. That tug towards Mimas pushes the ring particles. If the ring particle waters in that resonance, it gets a tug. It gets a push, and it actually clears this space. Resonances are really important. Resonances are very strong. Best analogy I can give is, if you've ever spent time, like I do with friends of my nephews, love, love the swings, especially when they were younger, right? They love getting pushed on the swings. Now, if you're pushing a kid on the swings, and you want him to go really high, and my nephew really liked going high, so we say, push, push harder, push faster. Well, obviously, you've got to push in exact time so that your push is exactly coordinated with the push of the kid on the swings. If I push while he's coming up, we're, I'm going to block him, slow him down, he's going to rattle around, it's not going to be the quality swing experience. In order to get the swing right, you have to time it so that your push is in exact rhythm with his swing. That is an example of a resonance. I could push him once. Every time he comes up, push him exactly like that. That's a one-to-one -one resonance. I could push him once, wait, and then push him every other time, but in exact timing. Then I'm going to be resonant coupling. But if I push him once, and then part way up, I push him again, and we sort of run into each other, and I push him randomly, you're not going to get any feedback. I'm not going to be able to push him efficiently. The energy is going to get wasted. Sometimes I make him decelerate. Sometimes I make him decelerate. But if everything is perfectly timed, then every single push accelerates. That's going to then cause a disproportionate response to the gravity of the object, and that's the effect of a resonance. That's why resonances are so powerful in gravity. Here, they've actually cleared the ring section. In fact, most of the, uh, the banding structures that we see through the ring are resonances with different moons. 
So the structure in Saturn's rings reveals the presence of orbital resonances throughout the ring systems. Sometimes those, the other place where we can get a, an effect is in the Anki gap. The Anki gap is really sharp, but it wasn't obviously in a resonance with anything. Why was it so clear? Well, the answer turned out to be when the Voyager 2 came by, and this beautiful picture from Cassini, is there's a moon smack in the middle of the gap. And it acts to any particles trying to move up, get pushed back in. Any particles trying to fall in from the outer part, get pushed back. And it literally carves a gap out of the ring. So I can form them by resonances, or I can carve them out gravitationally with a gap. See how this thing has carved a gap in the ring? It's about the same process by which a planet carves a gap out of a protosolar nebula when it's forming itself out of the protosolar nebula. So here is a place where we can test that idea of how does a planet hoover up its surroundings. There it is in miniature in Saturn's rings. Now where do the rings come from? Basically, the rings are not very big. They're really small and they're really thin. The possible origins are an icy moon that's come inside the so-called Roche radius, that's tidal stability radius, and got disrupted by tidal forces. So if I bring an object too close to another object, the tidal forces will overcome the gravity holding it together and rip it apart. So if a moon about 100 kilometers in size wandered into the Roche radius of Saturn, it would just bust it into parts and spread it into rings. The other possibility is more likely that we had raw material out of which a moon might have formed, but if that raw material is within the Roche radius, then the tides would tear apart anything that tried to build. And so the tides actually prevent the assembly of a moon, and so we can actually get assembly of material, basically disassemble anything I try to assemble. It stays remembering the original disk of material out of which the planet formed. Any questions? Well, I will see you all tomorrow then. Or no, I won't see you tomorrow. I will see you on Monday. Have a very nice Thanksgiving.